Uh, one of my favorite games uh, to play growing up was a variation of hide and seek that we called down in Bell County, kick the can or, or kick the bottle. Uh, maybe you had a variation of this and maybe you'll recognize it when I tell you about it. Uh, or maybe this is brand new to you and I'll just go ahead and say you're welcome. Uh, but when it came to the game of kick the can or kick the bottle, basically you just get a whole group of folks together and you would take an empty two liter bottle of soda and you would put the, you know, the top on really tight so it was nice and full. And, and out of the group of people uh, that were playing kick the can, you would have one person who was the seeker and, and everybody else, they were the hiders. And so you would take this empty soda liter bottle, you know, the, the, top, the top's on real tight, and you'd put it on a sidewalk or something. And, and then out of the group of people who were doing the hiding, you would elect someone uh, who had the strongest leg and could kick something the furthest because you would kick the can, and when the can was kicked, everybody would go hide. So the further that you could kick the can, the longer that you would have to go hide. So if you're with me so far, say, uh-huh. Okay, so you, you would get somebody out of those who were doing the hiding, you would put them up there, and then they would just kick the fire out of that thing, and then the person who was doing the seeking, they would have to go and run and chase down the can, bring it back, set it upright before they could actually go find people. And so if you were the seeker, you would have to then go look for folks, but the way that the game was played, the way the rules were, that if you saw John hiding over behind the boat, you would have to say, John hiding behind the boat. Now, if you were John hiding behind the boat, you weren't necessarily out of the game at this point. You still had a chance to be redeemed. You still had a chance to go free because if you could beat the seeker back to the can and kick the can before he touched it, you could go free. But if the seeker touched the can before you could kick the can, then you were out of the game. If you're with me still, say, uh-huh. Okay, so it was a lot of fun. I started playing this game when I was a kid. Uh, I played this game even into the teenage years. Um, you know, we would get together, you know, a big group of my friends, 12, 13, 14 of us. Uh, it, it would be uh, basically, you know, a co-ed group of folks. I don't say that that was the wisest thing in the world to play hide and seek at night in a co-ed group of people, but that's what we did. And, and so this is not, you know, prescriptive. This is just descriptive of, of, of what happened. Uh, so we would play, and then on one particular occasion, I had a bunch of my friends probably, you know, a dozen of us. There were some girls there, there some guys there, and I was probably 13, 14 at that particular time. And we were playing, you know, kick the can. And all of a sudden, uh, two other teenagers walked up. It was a guy and a girl, and they were brother and sisters. They were actually twins. And, and you know, this wasn't unusual, but they said, hey, you know, we're visiting some family nearby. We, we saw y'all over here. It looked fun. Can we, can we jump in and play? Well, that wasn't, you know, out of the normal. People would jump in, play basketball, and we, we were playing basketball during the day. And so things like this had happened before. This was nothing to be alarmed about. Besides, she was very pretty. And, and, and so, you know, yes, you can play. And your brother, yeah, sure. He, he, can, he, he can play too. And, and so we, we started playing kick the can. And, and probably we prayed, played, you know, we didn't pray, but uh, we, we, we played for a couple of hours. And, and then she and I, this, this girl who showed up in the middle of the game, who jumped in, uh, we ended up hiding in the same place. And, and the way that I remember the story was... She kissed me, and of course, since I was obviously the host of the game, I didn't want to be rude, so I kissed her back, and, and then she kissed me again, well, I kissed her back, and it, it, we, we stayed hidden for a while, and, and, and then, you know, after, after we came out, 
and we're all walking in to start a new game. My grandmother, her house was right there, and as we were walking up, and I was walking beside this, this new girl that obviously God had blessed me with, because I wasn't even saved at that point, point. God was already <laughs> blessing. I was like, oh my goodness. So I'm walking up with this new girl who joined our game I'd never met before, but obviously we've got chemistry. I walk up, and my grandmother comes out on the back porch and says, oh, Trevor, I see you've met your cousin. <laughs> Like I said, it was in Bell County. <laughs> and that was the story of how I accidentally one time kissed my cousin. <laughs> so the moral of the story is this. If you're ever playing kick the can and somebody strange walks up and asks to join, make sure you're not related. <laughs> but that's kind of the game I grew up playing. It's, it's hide and seek, a variation of it. And when it comes to playing hide-and-seek, there's something that we all love about playing hide-and-seek. It's actually universal. Psychologists have studied this, that all across the globe, people in some variation or another, they play the game hide-and-seek. And we actually start playing this game with little bitty babies. And we go, and what we're actually doing is we're capitalizing on something that babies don't have. Babies don't have this thing called object permanence. So when they lose sight of your face, they assume you no longer exist. So it's really quite sadistic and cruel. Mama doesn't exist. Peek-a-boo. Ah. And, you know, and the baby starts laughing. And it's really, you know, we think about it. We wonder why we all have problems. And, and it started super early. And so it was hide and seek from the very very beginning, because when you can't see their face, they assume you're gone forever. You step around the corner, it's like, ah, oh, I'm here. And, and so that's where it starts. Uh, but psychologists, they've got involved because they started noticing that everybody plays, you know, hide and seek to some degree, uh, no matter what the culture is and, and no matter what generation of people. And, and so a lot of speculation has been given to why do we like this game hide and seek so much? And, and so experts have said that there is something evidently instinctive inside of all of us where we just instinctively love to hide. We just love to hide. You know, maybe it's the fact that, you know, we get to go out and explore and we get to find a place and we get to try to stay hidden longer than everybody else. You know, experts say maybe it's a sense of freedom and autonomy. You know, you get away from everybody, you're by yourself, nobody knows where you are and we kind of just like that feeling of nobody knows where I'm at, nobody can see me and nobody, you know, can hear me. I'm just, I'm, I'm just hidden. Uh, there's that idea maybe that we like to see other people when they can't see us. You know, we're hiding behind the bushes, we're hiding behind the boat, we're hiding behind the house. We can see them, but they can't see us. We can hear them, but they can't hear us. And there's something that we just instinctively love about this idea of hiding. But eventually, whatever it is that we love about hiding, eventually it wears off and we get bored. And then what do we want? We want to be found. See, there's a great joy in hiding, but if you think about it, and you think about your childhood, and you think about, you know, perhaps teenage years where you played, you know, maybe kick the can, kick the bottle, or some variation of it, you think about over your life and the times where you've played hide and seek, there's a joy in hiding, but there seems to be an even greater joy in being found. It seems to be that on some level, when we hide, we're actually seeking to be found. That when we hide, we're actually seeking to be found. So you can remember you, you, you went out and you hid and you were in the middle of the game and you were hidden so well, no one could actually find you. So what did you do? You kind of gave yourself up. 
kind of gave yourself away. <clears throat> you coughed. You, you made a noise. You, hey, I'm over here. <laughs> when has I'm over here ever worked? But yet you're trying to tip your hat. You're trying to show your cards because we love hiding, but we, we don't want to stay hidden too long because there's something in us. We just love that feeling of somebody stepping on top of us, and they didn't even know we were going to be there. They walk around the corner, and there we are. Or they lift up you know, the box, and there we are. We, we just love the idea of being found, oftentimes even more so than hiding. Now, not only is hide-and-seek something that we play as children, maybe some of you, you still like to play hide-and-seek as adults. Maybe some of you, you like to play hide-and-seek or a variation of it at the office. Maybe, maybe you, even if you served at a local church on a church staff, maybe you waited for your pastor, the man of God, to show up. And after he's been prayed up and studied up, he shows up to the office to make a difference in the world. Maybe you're one of those adults who, who like to hide and cause trouble like this. <laughs> oh, dear Lord Jesus in heaven, Lord. Oh. <laughs> I just got myself a crib. You were like a munchkin down in the... I don't even know what you were. <laughs> See, we never quite move past the love of hiding, and we never really move past that joy of being found. But as we grow older, a lot of us, we start playing a very different game of hide and seek. Matter of fact, as adults, some of us, we're playing a much more dangerous game of more just hiding than it is all about the seeking part. For some of you, you're caught up in what's not a game at all. You're hiding. Because there's something instinctive in all of us where we just love to hide. But as adults, we start hiding from really significant things. We start hiding from some really important things. We start hiding, some of us, from people. We start hiding from our past. We start hiding from our decisions. We start hiding from reality itself. And it's dangerous. And the stakes are high. And sometimes we're doing it and we're not even thinking about it. Because we just instinctively hide some of us. Some of you are hiding from unsettling truth. It's truth that's so unsettling, it's so uncomfortable that you're just hiding from it. You don't want anything to do with it, so you're just, gonna, you're just going the other direction. For some of you, you're hiding from pain. It's the pain of your past. It's the pain of your present. It's the pain of how you were brought up. It's the pain of what happened to you as a teenager. It's the pain of what happened at your first year of college. It's the pain of the first marriage. It's the pain of what that person said. It's the pain of what that person did. And you've just gone into hiding. You know that pain is out there. It's seeking. You know that uncomfortable, unsettling truth is out there. But you're hiding. For some, they hide from responsibility. I'm sure, I'm sure you know somebody like this. Responsibilities out there and responsibilities looking and responsibilities knocking and responsibilities calling and responsibilities send a certified letter and responsibility has summoned them to court and responsibility is calling them to be responsible, to show up, to be present. But they're hiding. They're hiding from responsibility. They're hiding from brokenness. They're hiding from emptiness. They're hiding from the fact that they don't feel like they're loved, they don't feel like they're known, they don't feel like they're valuable. Maybe that's you. And maybe the emptiness of your reality has led you to go hide from that feeling because to confront it, to acknowledge it, is far too costly. Some people hide from dysfunction. 
The dysfunction that they realized their family was once they grew up. The dysfunction of mom, the dysfunction of dad, the dysfunction of siblings, the dysfunction of the larger family, the dysfunction of the community, the dysfunction of the church. And you just go into hiding from it. You didn't realize it when you were in it as a child, but you grew up and then you started to see your family in an entirely different way. And you realized you carried some baggage, you carried some wounds, you carried some hurt, you carried some brokenness. And you just, you just went in hiding when it came to all that dysfunction. Because to talk about it, to admit it, to own it, it's just too difficult. For some, they hide from depression. Because to say I'm depressed or to say that I suffer from depression, to say that depression has got a hold on me, I, I don't like how that sounds and I, I don't know what people would think about that and you know that feels weak and I, I just don't want anybody to know. And so I, I'm just going to go into hiding and I'm just not even going to... I'm just not even going to go there. For some people, they hide from addiction. It's the addiction of a drink. It's an addiction of a medication. It's the addiction of porn. It's the addiction of something. And, and to actually say I'm an addict, to actually say I've got a problem, well, that's just too problematic. I mean, who wants to do that? It's just instinctive that we just, we just hide from that. I don't want to admit my struggle. I don't want to admit that I've got a problem with anxiety caused by who knows what. Reality, we hide from it. But maybe like when we were children, the joy that's in hiding, the peace that's in hiding is not as good as the peace or the joy that comes from being found. And that's what this series is all about. This series is all about being found so that we can be free. This series is all about getting honest. You know, when we talk about honesty, we always talk about being honest with God and honest with people, but that's not what this is so much about. This is about being honest with you because you will never be honest with God until you are first honest with you. And if you're not honest with you, you can't be honest with God. And you're not going to be honest with anybody else until you get honest with you. Unless I get honest with me, I can't get better. Unless you get honest with you, you can't get better. Unless you get honest about you to you before God, you cannot move past the thing that you seemingly cannot move past. I cannot move past the thing that I seemingly cannot move past. Until we get to the place where we stop hiding and we start seeking to be found, we stay where we are, hiding from reality. And there's a danger in that. There's a danger in hiding from reality. There's a danger to you. There's a danger to those around you. A philosopher by the name of Dostoevsky, he, he said this about the matter. He said, above all, don't lie to yourself. In other words, lie to anybody else you want to, but don't lie to yourself. Above all, don't lie to yourself. A man who lies to himself and believes his own lies becomes unable to, un, to recognize the truth. You, you can't even determine what's true and what's not true anymore. Either in himself or in anyone else, and he ends up losing respect for himself and for others. When he has no respect for anyone, he can no longer love. This is where this gets serious. And in him, he yields to his impulses, indulges in the lowest form of pleasure, and behaves in the end like an animal in satisfying his vices. And it all comes from lying, namely to yourself. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Why do we find it easy to deny reality? Well, why is it so easy for us to lie to ourselves? Why does it seemingly appear to be true that the easiest person that we have when it comes to lying, the easiest person to lie to is ourselves? And here's the fact of the matter. If we can just get honest and, you know, not pretend and not play church, if we could all just put our cards on the table and just be really honest about things, we are all good liars. 
Now, I knew you weren't going to say amen. <laughs> but that would be a really great place to shake my head. That would be a really good place to give a witness. Because you may not want to think that's true. But we are all good liars. And we don't like that truth so much. You know what we do? We lie to ourselves about that truth. Well, I'm not a good liar. You know, if they tell, I can tell them I'm lying a mile. I'm not talking about everybody else. You don't see yourself lying to yourself a mile away. We're all good liars, and here's the brutal truth. The brutal truth is, at some point, at some place in our life, we're all lying. We're all going to lie. That's the brutal truth of it. People lie, you know, statistically, people say it takes about six minutes for people to drop a lie in a conversation. It's unbelievable. So I don't lie. Uh, you're in the wrong church. I'm going to tell you, they're all liars. Go find your church where they don't lie, but I'm telling you, to be human. So I don't lie. Of course you do. I'd love to hang out sometime. <laughs> Shut up. You're a liar. <laughs> Honey, does this make me look? No, no, no. no. That, I'll, matter of fact, you've never, I love that. Now, we may not lie deliberately. It may, we may not feel like it's bold-faced. We may not feel like, you know, it's upsetting the course of the world. But I'm talking about a lying that's harder to admit to, a lying that is harder to detect. I'm talking about when we are dishonest with ourselves. That's hard to detect. That's hard to admit. And so the question is, if this is something that we all do from time to time, where does it come from? And if we're capable of lying to ourselves, or maybe even prone to lying to ourselves, why is that a fact? The truth is we've been doing it from the very beginning. The first book in the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, it's called the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis literally means the book of beginnings. So if you want to read about the beginning of all things, go back and read the book of Genesis. It records the, you know, the beginning of the universe and the beginning God created. It records the beginning of man. It records the beginning of nature. It records the beginning of marriage. It records the beginning of family. It records the beginning of crime. It begins the, you know, records the beginning of urbanization and socialization and all those things. If you want to know about the beginning of things, go back to Genesis. And when you go back to the beginning of all beginnings, you're going to read about our first parents. And in the Jewish narrative, our first parents, Adam and Eve, we find in their story, our story. When you go back to the beginning of beginnings and you read about the account of Adam and Eve, in their story, you find our story. And you find out that by going back, you understand why we do some of the things where we are in the present. And it also helps us know how to move forward into the future. So when you open the book of beginnings and you find that God has created the heavens and the earth and that God has created man and he's called him Adam and he's created a garden called Eden and then he places Adam in that garden and this is where we pick up the story. It says, and the Lord commanded the man or Adam, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Now, I think that this is worth the trip and I think that this is worth noting. I think if I had a way to write this down or type this into my phone, I would type this or write this down. God's first words to humanity were words of freedom. God's first words were words of freedom. You are free. You are free to eat from all the trees in the garden. Words of freedom. Not words of restriction, but words of freedom. 
Now, some of you, when you think about the words of God, and you think about the word of God, and you think about, you know, things that God have said, the first thing that you think about, you think about thou shalt not, you think about restriction, you think about limitation, but the first thing that God said out of the gate was you are free. He says, you've got this whole garden except for one thing. Now, if you've got everything that is there for you that you're free to have access to, if you have everything that you have freedom to have and to enjoy, but yet you have one thing, you know what you still call that? Freedom. If you have a hundred things that you can do, but one thing that you can't do, that's freedom. He says, you're free, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, again, this is worth, this is worth noting. From the very beginning in the book of beginnings, God not only speaks his words of freedom from the very beginning, but from the very beginning, God gives to humanity responsibility for their own life. God gives to Adam, and God will give to every subsequent human that comes after him. God will give to them the freedom of choice, the responsibility to choose what they do or to choose what they will not do. God gave to them the choice to live the life that they wanted to live. That they would have the opportunity to choose the direction and the path that they would travel on. God did not put them in some predetermined box and God did not put them on some predetermined path where they had no choice. No, God gave them choice from the very beginning. And I know there's lots of questions about, well, why did God tell them not to in the first place? And, and there's questions that we'll never know the answer to and there's mysteries that God has just reserved for himself. And there's no need to even speculate about it because we have no idea the why behind a lot of what we read. But we do know that the plan of God was you are free except for this one thing, and it's your choice what you do with it. And God has given all of us the exact same thing, responsibility, the ability to choose, to choose how we live our lives, to choose what we do with our lives, that you are not a slave to your past, you're not a slave to your present, you're not a slave to the family you grew up in, you're not a slave to what they did to you or what he said about you, you're not a slave to your worst moment, your worst decision, that nobody can make you do anything. You, in the end, get to choose. Yes, some choices are easier for you to make than others. And life has brought you to a place where one decision may feel easier than another. But in the end, we all have the choice to choose how it is that we're gonna live our lives. And so from the very beginning, God gives them responsibility. And from the very beginning, we see God's heart as a father. God gives them one thing they can't do. And this is not about being restrictive. This is about being protective. God loves his children. Now, I love my children. Allison loves our children. Shepard and Grayson, we have many, many things that they are allowed to do at our house, but there are some things they are not allowed to do at our house. And it's not because we do not love them. Matter of fact, it is precisely because we do love them that we have put some things off limit. No, you shall not wrestle on the stairs. We just had those redone. <laughs> our, our boys emptied the dishwasher. They, they, put up, they put up the dishes. They put up the silverware. You know, walk with the knife pointed down to the ground. Why? Because we want to make it, you know, tougher on them, only carry one knife at a time because we, we want to, you know, work them as long as humanly possible. No, it's because I don't want my kid to get hurt. I see danger 
where they can't. Their mother can see danger where they can't. That's what a good parent does. Now, I shouldn't have to say this again, but in our culture, I think I'll just say it again. That's what a good parent does. A good parent just doesn't offer utter freedom without some restrictions. To give utter freedom without any restrictions, that's not parenting. That's passivity. That's neglect. That's abuse. That's unlove, not love. And so love requires, okay, here's freedom, but here's something. No, no, no. That's off limit. And so God, he's protecting them because he's not trying to keep them from something. He has something far greater for them that they don't even understand. And for those of you who grew up thinking, or maybe you think right now that God's obsessed with rules and God's obsessed with commandments, and as soon as you think about God, you think about thou shalt not this and thou shalt not that and all these rules and regulations, keep in mind that from the very beginning, we are introduced to a God who says, hey, you're free, except for one thing. When we get to the New Testament, Jesus shows up and he offers a brand new covenant to the world, a covenant of grace, a covenant where the law has been fulfilled and there's only one law of the new covenant which is to love one another as Jesus has loved us, to love God and to love people. There's so much freedom within grace. Sometimes it's scary, which is why churches resort to legalism and making up rules because we're intimidated by freedom, but freedom was the way from the very beginning. And then as a good parent, he says, okay, here's the rules or here's the rule. And if you break it, there's gonna be consequences because again, Good parents, when you break a rule, you make sure there's consequences because to make a rule, but there's no consequences when you break the rule, it's a signal to your son or your daughter that the rules never matter to begin with. And so if you don't care enough about the rules to make sure there's consequences, then I'm not going to care enough about keeping the rules if there's not going to be any consequences. And God, like a good father, says, okay, you're free, but here's the one thing. But if you do the one thing that I told you not to do, there's consequences to that. And so we're seeing God as a father. We're seeing our responsibility. We're understanding a lot from the very beginning. So he tells Adam all this. And then, then you know, Adam, you know, he's lonely. And God gives him a wife. And, and all of a sudden, you know, Adam passes out and he wakes up married. Kind of like somebody went to Vegas, but it happened in Eden. He, he, he passed out and he woke up married. So, whoa, what happened here? It's like, oh, it's your wife. My wife? Where did she come from? That's a long story, Adam. I'll tell you more about it later. But so, you know, here comes Eve. And chapter 2 ends this way. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, we couldn't do this next Sunday at church. We, we couldn't send out an invite saying, hey, next week's Naked Sunday. Come on. It'd either be the largest attendance ever or nobody would be here. Or some weird people would be here. There's something that happens, right? For parents, you know this. There's grandparents, you know this. There's something that happens. Instinctively, I mean, it's like a clock went off, an alarm went off. Something happened when your children were no longer comfortable with just going naked through the house. All of a sudden, they begin to hide themselves, cover themselves. It just, it's just, it just kind of happens oftentimes. And so this was a time in history where there, there was nothing bad. It was all good. It was no sin, no disease, no, no dysfunction, no regrets. This was a good time. And if there were a soundtrack at the end of chapter 2, it would be great, happy music. But then in between chapter 2 and chapter 3, the conductor would be, you know, signaling, okay, ominous music, cue. So chapter 3 begins this way. Now the serpent 
The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Now, okay, you know, obviously, even if you're not familiar with scriptures or church, you know, folks say, okay, there's the devil, that's Satan. And when we hear serpent, you know, we just think serpent as we know a serpent, serpent that crawls and slithers on the ground. But, but a lot of scholars believe that at this particular point in creation, that the serpent was an upright animal, that the, that the serpent walked upright, that it was beautiful, seductively beautiful, attractive even. Because if, if the devil were ugly always and had, you know, the pitchfork and the horns and, and showed up into your life or showed up that day to Eve and said, hey, hey. I'm the devil. I'm here to talk with you. You'd be like, oh, I don't know about that. But he's so beautiful and he's so seductive. And the serpent shows up and he's got a way with words. He's good to look at and he uses words well. And he said to the woman, he said to Eve, did God really say, did God really say that you must not eat from any of the tree in the garden? And in this moment, a question sows distrust in Eve's heart and mind. Sometimes you don't even have to make a statement to sow distrust. Sometimes it can just be a question. Now, we just ended a whole series about questions, and questions are good, but some questions are dangerous because they're intended to sow distrust. And whenever you begin to distrust God, it's only a matter of time before you disobey God. When you begin to distrust God's heart, that God is good, that his plan for you is good. Whenever you begin to distrust or I begin to distrust God's heart, it is only a matter of time before we disobey God's word, before we disobey God's command. Eve, did God really say, because Jewish tradition says there was about seven years in between chapter two and chapter three, but we have no idea whether that's true or not. But let's just say some time went by between, you know, when God spoke to Adam and said, hey, you're free, but this one thing stay away from. And then, you know, he got married to Eve and maybe some time has gone by. And so the serpent just says, did God really say? Does God really have your best interest in mind? Is God really good? Does, is God's plan for you, Eve, really good? Does it, does it feel good? If God would keep you from this, if God would put this off limit, if God would say this is wrong, this is, this is restricted, is, is God really good? Especially, Eve, if that's what you want. If that's what you feel like you need. What kind of good God is he if he's going to keep you from the thing that you want most? What kind of God would he be from the thing, you know, that he would keep you from the thing you feel like you need most? I mean, what kind of God is he? Eve, is, is God really for you? Doesn't feel like he is. Is he for you? And here's what the serpent does. God's first words were freedom. The serpent's first words were about restriction. The serpent wanted to talk about the one thing that God had said was off limits. But you know what? A lot of us, we have this conversation all the time. Some of us have had this conversation. Some of us are having this conversation. We don't even need the serpent to show up. We don't even need Satan to show up. We don't need the enemy to show up. Some of us, we can have this conversation with ourselves. Did God really say that? And if God said it, did he really mean what it appears that he meant, because I don't think God could have meant that because th this, is, this is not good for me. I don't feel like this is best for me. And so I don't really think that God meant it because if God is good, he couldn't have meant this. And if God meant this, then God couldn't have been good. Eve, 
Surely God didn't mean this. Surely Adam heard it wrong. Surely he interpreted it wrong. Surely it's not what it appears to be. God wouldn't have done this to you. God wouldn't have kept you from this. It's almost like the serpent saying, Eve, what God said is kind of up for your personal evaluation. It's up to your own personal interpretation. If it doesn't feel like it works for you, then fine. It must not mean that for you. And so just adjust it a little bit, move forward, and live your life. It's a conversation our culture still has. It's a conversation that people of faith have, that people of no faith have. It's just a conversation that we've been having from the beginning of all beginnings. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat. This is what God said. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it. And God, God didn't say that part, but she just threw it in there. Or you will die. Again, it's like the serpent saying, Eve, why would God keep you from this? Why would God keep you from something so beautiful? Look at that tree. Why would God keep you from something so beautiful that, that looks so right, it feels so right? Why, Eve, this is not going to hurt anybody. This is not going to hurt you. Why would God rob you of this? If God's so wonderful, come on. Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? And then the serpent says, you will not certainly die. You won't certainly die. <laughs> Eve, come on. You can be irresponsible, and it's not going to hurt anybody. You can choose to disobey, and it's not going to hurt anybody. You, you can choose to disregard what God said. It's not going to hurt anybody. This is your life, Eve. After all, you get to live it the way you want to. It's not going to hurt anybody. Do what you want to do and don't worry about the consequences. But for those of us who've been around, for those of us who've been there, done that, for those of us who've already walked through that parade, bought that t-shirt, we've got the hat and even the pants that match. For those of us who've been in those situations where we lied to ourselves, we lied the enemy to lie to ourselves, and we swallowed the lie because in part we wanted to believe the lie. For those of us who've been there and done that, we can tell you, you cannot be irresponsible without there being consequences. We want to think about consequences as being outward. We want to think about consequences as being visible. But oftentimes, the consequences of the irresponsible choices that you and I make, they're totally internal. The reason that you're so anxious and depressed and the reason that you're so tore up and the reason you're so fearful and so fretful and the reason you wake up with it and you go to sleep with it and you can't escape it and you can't hide from it, it's the consequences of irresponsibility. Because I know, and many of you, you could stand up this morning and you could tell, you'll tell your children, you'll tell your grandchildren, sin always has consequences. Sin always kills something. That's the way it works. It kills hopes, it kills dreams, it kills families, it kills marriages, it kills relationships. It kills things. That's what sin does. It will hurt you, it will hurt me, it'll hurt those around us. That's just the way it works. You won't certainly die. Come on. Nobody's gonna get hurt. You'll do it different. You'll manage the consequences. You won't be dumb about it. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Evie's keeping you from something. 
He's selfish. He's sadistic. He's malevolent himself. I mean, come on now. What kind of God would do that? What kind of God would say that? And when the woman saw, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, good for food, she didn't need food. She had the whole garden. But isn't that the way it works? Well, you know, that's what I kind of need that, and that's what it'll kind of make life a little better, and I think I will. I'll fudge a little bit there. And I'll, she didn't need food. And because it was pleasing to the eye, listen, whenever you and I fixate on the forbidden, we lose any sense of freedom that we may have. You may be free, but when you fixate on what is forbidden, you no longer feel free. Your eyes, my eyes, they're a gate, they're a doorway, they're a pathway to the heart. The reason you want her, the reason you want him, the reason you want it, the reason you want that, the reason it's that house or that car, the reason this and the reason that, and the, because we keep looking at it. And when you fixate on what isn't yours and what is forbidden, you begin to lose any sense of freedom or blessing that's part of your reality. It's the lust of the flesh. It's the lust of the eyes. It's the pride of life. He goes on and says, then she gave some to her husband and ate it. And he ate it. So I don't know where Adam's been, but here he comes, you know, here, eat. Okay. And in this moment, everything changed about everything. Sin came into the world. Dysfunction. Death. Everything that's broken and empty about the world, it came in right then. All because they chose their own way. And here's the reminder. Sometimes our choices invite in things we would never have chosen. Now, if the choice had been death, disease, heartache, war, violence, strife, if that had been the choice, if all of that had been on the table, and in a way it was because God said, you're certainly going to die, but there was a risk evidently they thought that they were willing to take, but we're talking about their children, we're talking about generations, we're talking about the future, we're talking about the world. And it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed leaves together and made covering for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they what? Talk to me, everybody right here. And they hid. That's where it started. Right there. That's why we still enjoy it. It started right there. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And here's the thing. They didn't have to hide. They didn't need to hide. God wasn't looking for them to pay them back. God was looking for them in order to win them back. They distrusted God. They thought God was angry. They thought that God hated them now, and so they went into hiding. They didn't understand that God wasn't coming to pay them back. God was coming after them to win them back. It says, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Not that God needed to know, but God needed Adam to know, and God needed Adam to, you know, Eve to know. He needed them to get honest with themselves about why they are where they are and what happened and what led up to it. He said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. They were afraid that God wouldn't love them the way that he did before. 
Some of you are hiding from whatever it is that you're hiding from because in some way you feel like God doesn't love you the same anymore. You feel like things have changed. You feel like he's mad. You feel like he's angry. You feel like he's after you. You feel like he's wanting to pay you back. And you're hiding because you don't understand that he's seeking you. He's pursuing you to win you back. See, their story really surfaces our story because we're still hiding today in more sophisticated ways. Not with fig leaves, not behind a few trees, but we hide in some different ways. We hide behind self-deception. We ignore reality. We just ignore it. And then we create our own reality to replace it. We forget that Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says that the heart is deceptively wicked above all things. And who can know it? That means your heart can lie to you and you not even know that your heart's lying to you. Your heart and my heart is so deceptive, it's so wicked. It can cause you to believe one thing is reality when a completely different thing is actually reality. That we self-deceive ourselves to say we're good when we're not. That we're, we're healthy when we're not. That we're holding things together when we're not. That we're strong when we are obviously not. That we love God and perhaps we don't. Jesus met a group of people, the Pharisees. That they, they were so self-deceived. They believed they loved God, but God said, you don't love me. They said, yeah, we're fans of the prophets. And he said, no, you killed the prophets. We can be so self-deceived, we don't understand what we're even doing. We forget Proverbs 14, 12, that there is a way that seems right unto man, but in the end, it leads to destruction. We forget 1 John 1, 8 and 9, that if we say we have no sin, we have deceived ourselves. We hide behind self-deception. Some of us have edited ourselves so much when we get around other people, we don't even know who we are. We've given a little glimpse of this part and that part and when we're at the office, this part, when we're home, this part. We've edited ourselves, compartmentalized ourselves so very much, we don't even know who we are anymore. We hide behind self-deception. We hide behind isolation. Yeah, we say we have friends, but, but we don't let them in. We don't let them get close enough so that they can see what I may not be able to see or that they can hear what I may not be able to hear or know what I may not be able to know about me. I don't want to let anybody get too close to see my unhealthy patterns, my unholy affections. I don't want to let anybody get too close. So we'll go out, we'll do dinner, we'll hang out, we'll laugh, and then we'll say goodnight. But no, I'm not going to get close. I'm not going to open up, and I, I, no, I'm not going to do that. So I'm just going to hide behind my isolation. I'm going to hide behind denial. Maybe that's some of us. You just refuse to admit what is real because it's unacceptable. You don't want to admit that it's become unmanageable. Even in light of evidence, even in light of somebody says, hey, well, what about this? And, I, you know, I'm noticing and I'm concerned. No. You're not willing to consent to the idea that you may drink too much. That you may, you know, one-up that prescription every time you take one just because it lasts a little longer or it helps a little better than what the doctor or the pharmacist said that it would. 
You're still a good parent even though you're petty with your children. It's denial. Maybe you hide behind rationalization because you have an excuse. I have an excuse. We all have an excuse. But as long as you make excuses, you can't take responsibility. And well, that's who I am, and that's where I come from. And you know, my parents made me do it, and my past made me do it, and my brain made me do it. We hide behind self-righteousness. Because the easiest place to hide is behind somebody else's sin. I compare my best to somebody else's worst, and so I feel good about myself. And I'm like the guy who said, hey, in Luke 18, I'm so glad I'm not like them. And so we just get self-righteous. So what do we learn about this? What do we learn from their story, about our story? We should learn we should stop hiding because you can't be free until you allow yourself to first be found. You can't be free until you allow yourself to first be found. Some of you are fearful that you're going to be found, while at the same time you're fearful that you're not going to be found. You're afraid if you're fully known, you'll never be fully loved. Because who would fully love you if they fully knew you? But see, the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus is that our Heavenly Father fully knows us. He knows everything. He knows the good, the bad, the dysfunctional. He, he knows it all. And He says, I still fully love you. And the idea is you can be fully honest with yourself because God fully knows you and yet fully loves you. So I'm praying over the next few weeks, some of us seek to be found, that we get honest, that we're found in order to be free, that we hold on to the truth that God fully knows me and he fully loves me and we're gonna hold on to that we're going to start walking towards truth because it's the truth will set us free. God walks towards us in our mess, stands with us in our mess, takes us by the hand and says, let me lead you out of this mess. Father, may the Spirit of God do what none of us can, break down our defenses break down our resistance. Help us to hold on to the truth that we are fully known and we are fully loved and let us begin to move towards being honest with ourselves so that we can be honest with you so that the truth can set us free. May we not lose hold of that fact. In Jesus' name.